What is going on, everybody? Congratulations. This is episode number 100 of my podcast, the Craig Honeycutt Podcast, formerly the Honeycutt Scenario. It's still a scenario. It's just my podcast. Simplify. I get a little too clever sometimes. Anyway, welcome back. I hope you are doing well. I hope you're treating yourself good and you're being good to the people around you and that wherever you are, whenever you are, it's the right place to be. Um, Episode 100. I did not know how long it would take me to get here. It took me a year and a half, year and three quarters. Uh, it's been an interesting journey to do a podcast, one that's just personal. I send out to my friends. I have a cup of ginger tea here. And we are on our summer schedule, which is Tuesdays and Fridays. So I'm actually recording this Tuesday evening about 8 o'clock. Uh, looks like we are getting a week worth of rain here on the Outer Banks starting today. Got cloudy. Now it's opened up. It's wet. It's gray. I think it's going to be like this for a bit of time. And you know what? That's how it goes. I do feel bad for people who come down for like one week vacation and then it rains all week and they're like, they think the Outer Banks just sucks and it rains all the time. Or the people who come down and get the perfect weather and they think it's like uh, Margaritaville all the time down here. Uh, one thing I can say here, it is very unpredictable. The weather is powerful. The wind is powerful and it is a very dynamic place. Uh, I feel very alive here a lot of the time. Um just so dynamic and so powerful to be on the edge of the world, feeling the ocean and the wind and the water and the salt air. It's just badass. Sometimes challenging. Uh, let's see. The Music OBX concert series has started. So if you're coming to the Outer Banks, there's a lot of really good music happening over at Festival Park. So that's awesome. Uh, the band Everything had a very successful Kickstarter program. Uh, we raised... A little over $40,000 to make a record. Uh, we will be having meetings starting this week to talk about pre-production, songwriting. It'll probably take us about a year to do this record because we want to make a great record. And I'm super excited to work with Steve and Nathan and our cast of uh, wonderful musicians to really craft and invite into the world a, a masterwork to the best of our ability. You know, I think one of the things that I've come to relish about music is just the ability to connect and transform a moment with people and to watch people's eyes light up in surprise. I love the element of surprise. One of the things uh, after I got off the road with the band, everything was I loved playing acoustic guitar and I just loved doing it at parties and for friends and for people who didn't know me and to see their face light up when they're like, oh, wow, this is like a re the real thing. And I, I just love that. I love the connectivity. I love the healing power of music. I love the language. I love all of the, I just love it. It's awesome. Um, so if you were part of the Kickstarter and you hooked us up, thank you so much. It's a humbling and beautiful feeling to be supported by so many people. And that is not something to take lightly. So brings us to our topic. I've been thinking about this one for a while, and I've been nervous to talk about it because I'm not quite sure how to talk about it. I don't write scripts for this podcast. I just sort of try to articulate things that are on my mind. Um, and just like songwriting, when I write a song, it helps clear my mind out. Uh, doing a podcast also clears my mind out because I'm constantly thinking about stuff, and I'm like, hey, you know, I need to kind of talk this out a little bit. And uh, 
it's around the idea of rarefied air. And, and my sort of topic is rarefied air is just air. And I want to like, how do, how do I start this? And so I'm going to start at the start. And that was when I was a little kid, my first crush was on Pippi Longstocking. I was, I, I just, Pippi, like she, she did it for me. And it's funny when you look at Pippi Longstocking, those old like 60s or 70s movies, like she's you know, like, kind of like, looks like a character of somebody, right? With the pigtails and the big candy cane stockings and the like freckled makeup. I might even be describing it wrong, but it's like, you know, it's not real. But for my six-year-old mind, I was like, man, Pippi, like she was this magical creature and she was like a kind of like a woman for someone like me because I was six. And I was like, Pippi, you know, and I was like, man, I got to like, I got to do something heroic or come up with some like gesture to like figure out how to get into Pippi's long stockings, right? He's like, come on, Pippi, show me the way. And I just remembered that feeling of like, okay, I got to like, I got to bring the heat here. I got to like, got to concoct something giant to get into so I can like prove my worth to Pippi. And that started a journey. And, you know, I was probably going to have that journey anyway, but let's just say Pippi was the first like thing that I can remember where it was just like, dang. And so I started to think about gestures and doing things that made people ooh and ah or they were delighted, or something where you just got the nod, or people laughed, or something, and it was like my first real focus towards trying to make great work, hang around people who are really good at something, be curious to learn as much as possible, and try to like be in the moment where the thing happened. Right. So when I was a little kid, you know, we've all had this, but like sports, like, right. Like you do the countdown, like you count down, like you're doing the shot that saves the game or whatever. And to imagine yourself in that spot to be doing the thing. And I got into the arts early as well and was always on stage. It seems like was always around the stage. My first job in show business at 10 years old, I was a stage manager for a play called Dark of the Moon down in Tennessee that my aunt and uncle put on in the front lawn of their house in Bluff City to raise money for the rescue squad. So I was like the stage manager. And I just always loved show business. I love the mystery of it. I love how people paid attention and that you could tell a story and transform people and transfix people. And I always wanted to be there in the main place. And so I just envisioned and thought about it. And I got into music. I, I was on stage. I sang in choir. When I was 12, I started to play guitar. I started to write songs because I was like, I want to do something significant. And then I got into musicals in high school. So I was, you know, I typically got the lead when I tried out. Um, and I just loved the pressure of it. I loved the big drop, right? I loved the fear of failure. I loved the attention and the being the center of attention. I loved the focus of it. I loved the challenge of it. I loved the notoriety of it. I loved so much of it. And I was 
ambitious. I was eager. I was curious. I was egotistical. Um, and there's that drive for fame. And it's a convoluted journey because it's, for me, it was like fame was really like an indicator for crushing it rather than just fame for fame's sake. I wanted to get the nod because I had done something of significance. And then when I went to JMU and put the band everything together, the drive was the same. And I was always looking like, where's where's the vibe? And you could always know when a show went great, right? We'd be working, working, and there would be a moment. People loved it. Like, that was a, a thing. That was a thing. And we worked and worked and worked. And most of the time, there just wasn't rarefied air. It was just struggle. And then slowly, it was like meeting incredible musicians and witnessing greatness and people who are exceptional musicians who had rarefied air around them. And then starting to see my scene take off, meeting Steve Lillywhite when he was going to produce Dave Matthews. Watching Dave Matthews become a star and knowing and watching and being intimate with him as a friend when I was on the road with him and watching what happens when somebody becomes a star. There's an energy around it. And to be like, okay, it's like if you're a kayaker and you hit a really good whitewater rapid. And I was like, okay, rarefied air. And to know when things are flowing in that zone. And when Hooch took off and you could just feel it, like things are just picking up pace and getting on stage in front of 30,000 people in Tulsa, singing a national anthem in front of 78,000 people at a, a Washington football game um hanging around heroes that i had met having those moments where you're like okay this is the deal and i always thought like rarefied air you could collaborate with people and i learned some hard lessons along the way in the way that the music business and corporate america and greed works and, you know, I was ambitious and I was greedy and in my own right, but I was also naive and innocent in some ways. So it was a an odd combination at high pace and just rarefied air. And then when I moved to Los Angeles and hung out with people, always seeking like rarefied air, seeking to be exceptional and rarefied myself, but to be around exceptionally talented and unique people and to try to operate in that environment as much as possible and the loneliness that came in between the moments of rarefied air which was most of the time rarefied air is rarefied for a reason it's hard to get to now you can think of rarefied air of like hey i went to the top of mount everest and you can say hey well rarefied air is just air Sometimes you get to take a few special breaths, but you can't live on top of Mount Everest. And it was a very hard bump for me to come off of the journey of being in a band because there's a rarefied feel when you're totally dedicated to something and you're willing to sacrifice the rest of your life for that. Rightly or wrongly, you're making that sacrifice. And it's an interesting thing to have come off of that and go, okay, well, this is just normal. And I'm not good at being normal. And I would just constantly seek that rarefied experience. And I still really enjoy exceptional people and exceptional circumstances 
but I've come to to enjoy regular life because rarefied air is just air. And I've seen celebrity at work and I've seen the primal energy that goes with celebrity and how people clamor for the illusion of rarefied air, which is status, which is people have something that they have some social currency. And I've seen people, there's a a primal energy to it. It's animalistic. It's brutal. It's not polite. And it's super interesting because it's fleeting as well. And you could also extend that into rarefied air around people of deep, deep spirit and people who are accelerated in the mystical realms. They, the best ones are always the most humble because they know that rarefied air is just air and that the adage before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water comes into effect because if you're constantly looking for that dose of rarefied air, that elevated state, you can get lost in it. And I have seen His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, speak several times, and it has been really beautiful each time. And as a teacher and a leader, he is exceptional bar none. And he got into a little trouble a month or two ago where he like something happened where he like sucked on the end of some kid's tongue. And I don't know the the stuff around it. I just think that he's been venerated for so long. There's a possibility that sometimes you just lose perspective and you can be spiritually advanced and make a mistake if you're in rarefied air too long and you just live in a distorted environment compared to the rest of the world because the rest of the world's just breathing air. And then, you know, conversely as well, like the masters that, then turn each moment into rarefied air, right? So you turn the statement on its head by saying, I'm in this moment here on this microphone that's made of unbelievable things and technology and atoms, and we're being held together by forces unseen, and we have a finite amount of time here, and I'm breathing and my lungs work, and somehow I get oxygen in my blood that allows me to articulate all of these thoughts. And to think about rarefied air, and to think about each moment being rarefied, and then to kind of dip back into a little bit of what I'm talking about, I had a moment when Trisha and I were doing work on the condo that we bought. We were redoing the concrete floor. And we played a playlist on Spotify called uh, Rock Hits of the 90s. So, And it was like, you know, Nirvana and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Foo Fighters and Stone Temple Pilots and Soundgarden and like all that stuff. I mean, great songs. And I had this moment where I was like, holy crap. And I just looked at each listing of the artist and 80% of the groups on there had some major calamity involving drugs or suicide or, or mental health. That, I mean, calamity, like somebody died. And I just thought, wow, people are trying to look for that rarefied air and they're willing to sacrifice whatever to get there and they end up sacrificing whatever to get there. 
And I was one of those people. I'm lucky that the fates did not accept my sacrifice and they sent me packing. They said, bro, you need to go and cool your jets and figure your shit out and get it together for the long game. And you think about some of the heroes, some you hear about Chris Cornell, who was an unbelievable singer and guitar player and was having this growth as an as a acoustic musician. I actually talked to a friend of mine who saw him you know, not long before he died, and she was like, his acoustic performance was probably the best thing I ever saw. And Chris Cornell was, you know, not the hot young thing. He was an adult. He was making decent money. Maybe he wasn't rocketing to the moon, which was that rarefied air feeling, right? You're the young hot thing. You got this huge, like, ascendancy. Like, that's intoxicating. And... He had this beautiful acoustic thing, and he OD'd. I think he OD'd. Check my my facts on that. But he left early. And I I see that happening. Linkin Park, a lot of people who just have a hard time being with themselves after the rise, you know, and that's not just fame. I mean, there's, think about like the yogis and the mystical teachers who stumble and fall because people adore them and they have access to other realms and they think, oh, well, look at me. I have access to these realms. I'm cool. I'm a badass. I can get away with some things and all of that. And it's like, that's that love of rarefied air. And it's interesting because rarefied air is beautiful when you actually feel it. Like, wow, I'm around some incredible musicians or something incredibly special happened. And to accept it as just air rather than air that charges you up and gets your emotional system fired up and chemicals in your brain that get you high, it's more of like, how can you treat that as just another breath, but one that has a resonance that you can keep with you as being like, okay, yeah, that's one of those moments. So it's interesting. Rarefied air is just air. There are a lot of scenes out there with exceptional people in them, music scenes, social scenes, spiritual scenes, athletic scenes, intellectual scenes, financial scenes that are filled with rarefied air. That's just air. So that's a lot, but thanks for letting me articulate. I hope this podcast finds you well in the world, and I will talk to you on Friday. 